Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. My finger! What's wrong with these darn fingers? This thumb pad just ain't working right. Hello everyone, welcome to another exciting, action-packed, fun-filled episode of Conspiranormal with your host, Adam Sane, and your co-host, Luke Reed. Alright, Luke, how you doing, man? Pretty good, man. Well, what you been up to? It's been a couple of weeks. Um, St. Paddy's yesterday. Uh, I know that had to have been fun. <laughs> my buddy ate some concrete. Ooh. Not, not literally, for those who don't know what that means, it means right, falling I think down. He was actually eating the cereal bowl of concrete <laughs> and hurting yourself. That's what I mean. But, yeah. Uh, you know, we drank a lot of beer and. Um, Did you drink any green beer? No, I don't drink green beer. Oh, I don't want man. the food dyes rotting my teeth away. Well, you know what I did? You know what I did yesterday? What? Absolutely nothing. Oh. Absolutely nothing. Sounds like a great time. Way to yeah, celebrate. Yeah. I know, man. I was really celebrating my Irish. Well, I, actually, I wasn't doing it. Me and my girlfriend were just sitting in the apartment, just watching TV, and, and uh, all three of the guys just stormed in and, and kind of took us. All three you know. of your drunk friends? All three of my drunken buddies, yeah. <laughs> you know. Sounds like a country song. <laughs> all three of my drunken buddies. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, well... What did you think of last week's interview with uh, old Doc Marquis? Well, uh, you know, when it comes to dates and important people's names, my eyes start to glaze over. But yeah, <laughs> but, you, pretty, you pretty much fall asleep. But other than that, uh, the whole my favorite part of the interview is when he was talking about the initiation ceremonies and stuff and cutting his arm with the athame and stuff like that. It was pretty tight. Yeah, but you were not. Uh... You were kind of sad that he didn't go into any other any, any yeah. other rituals and, or and anything that, else. I, I always try to find the most polite way to say, 
you know, ha- uh, I'd try to get more details politely, and that's hard for me. Yeah. I just want to just come out flat and just say, dude, you know, what are you doing to the enemy? Like, tell me what kind of hexes and, and curses you were casting. <laughs> that's what I want to know. But well, maybe he feels like if you knew, you would try to do it, and you would just get you would just get in trouble. You must have given him a little, uh, uh, what do you call it? A little foreshadowing. Foreshadowing of, of who he was speaking to. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, you were telling me that you were going to try some rituals, which I disapprove of. But uh, of course, so what's yeah. uh, kind of a situation can't really go into the the cause. But uh, well, I, I will say a little bit about it because nobody listens to the show that I know really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're getting, so, a lot of, we're getting a lot of listeners, by the way, right uh, now. So. Someone that's really close to me had something happen to them when they went out one night. Yeah. And it's a female. You know, I'll give yeah. you that. So that pretty much narrows what happened. Sure. And um, this guy and the way our, our system, our judicial system works, got away scot-free with no penalty whatsoever. And needless to say, you know, every day since the incident happened, I feel like killing him. Yeah, I, and I can't. Like I can't him. say that I blame you. And um, you know, and since he's protected, there's really nothing anybody can do, and and uh, I'm just supposed to drop it and leave it alone. Uh huh. So I've resorted to terms of occultism. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this time I'm not kidding. So I'm gonna keep our listeners updated about uh, what happens to him because I ha- I do have people on the inside that are uh, would know, you know, if, if something happened. So Well you wanna make his hair fall out? Something like that. <laughs> That's a little generous, don't you think? I'm thinking more along the lines of a car wreck or something. Woo, man. <laughs> He's, I want him dead. Wow, no, that's, that's a little rough there, Luke. A <laughs> little rough? For- you, you, you better, yeah, I, I, yeah, if anybody knew what he actually did do, you, yeah. But uh, just, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, that's stuff that I wouldn't mess with, and it might backfire back on you. Well, you know you know me. I'm, I'm not scared off by what the media has to portray or... Uh, you know what people are trying to warn me against, or whatever. I I don't care. <laughs> I'm gonna find out for myself. I've noticed. Yeah. So Luke is gonna put a hex on somebody. So we'll uh, we'll keep everybody I'm, I'm, posted on yeah, that one. I'm pulling out everything I've got. <laughs> I in no way approve of this, by the way. For just for the record, and I do. Conspiranormal record. <laughs> of course you do. You're the one who's gonna do it. I do on the conspiranormal record. <laughs> But anyway, uh, turning the page to the guest, tonight we're going to have Chris Putnam on. He is a uh, uh, blogger. He writes for the Logos Apologia, Apologia blog. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, something that's been in the news lately, which is the uh, the Pope and the St. Malachi prophecy. Which, as anybody is familiar with that, that is the prophecy of the Pope's it says that now this current pope that just got elected last Wednesday is the uh, recording this on the 18th. But that last Wednesday he was he is supposed to be the last pope. And Chris has uh, co-authored a book on that called Petros Romanos, which came out last year. And uh, we're going to get him on to tell us all about it. Where Luke drinks his silver bullet. 
It's good stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, and, I, and if anybody could see Luke right now, he is sporting the headband hardcore. Yeah, it's it's summertime. Um, I'm losing my hair and it's getting thin, so I don't really want it to fall out completely. So I figured the the headband was a smart choice. You didn't try any hexes on that guy, have you? Not yet. Is that why your hair is falling not yet? Out? I'm get I gotta have the necessary materials first. <laughs> I got <gotcha>. you. <laughs> and the necessary materials are. Candles, altars, uh, uh, recordings of goats. No, 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 no. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not making a humunculus. Uh, well, you can maybe make a humunculus to to like torture him. Yeah, that's true. A little <laughs> weird guy that crawls in his bed. Good idea, man. He's <laughs> got a, a clay man crawling in bed with him. <laughs> yeah, Luke is becoming a uh, pr- practitioner of black magic. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really take that much, you know. But we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah, with it. We'll see what happens when you call me. Like, God, I'm just got in a car accident. I'm really hurt. I can't come to the show, <laughs> man. <laughs> and for any Chris fans, uh, Chris is not here again tonight. Oh. And it may be about a month or so before Chris comes back. <laughs> so, uh, but without further ado, I think we're going to go to the go to the guest. And uh, if you got anything to add, rock on. All right, rock on, man. We will uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal with Chris Putnam. All right, we're back on Conspiranormal. What's up, Luke? Same as what was going on before. That's right, man. <laughs> All right, well, we have on the line Chris Putnam, and he is in high demand, and we are very lucky to have him. And uh, Chris is the uh, uh, author of the blog Logos Apologia, and... Uh, he has decided he's come on to talk to us tonight about the Pope and about the Vatican and all the kind of strange things that are going on there. And uh, we want to go ahead and bring him on. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be on with you guys. Hey, great to have you, bud. Uh, Chris, if you could kind of you know tell our audience who may not be familiar with you, uh, you know who you are and uh, uh, how you got into the kind of like this field of study that you're in. Well, certainly, I am. Uh I, you know, I started out as a Christian apologist. I, uh, I really, I, you know, most of my life I was not a Christian. I was very much skeptical. I, I like to say that I even was playing for the other team. I grew up, you know, playing in, in rock bands and kind of was a legend in my own mind there for a while. But I, I was definitely not uh, a Christian. And, you know, I came face-to-face with the reality of of the end of my lifestyle, it was a destructive lifestyle. You know, trying to live like a rock star when you don't have the assets of one uh, can get you in trouble awfully quickly. Yeah. And you know, I came to the end of myself, and you know, I had an encounter with the gospel that that changed my life. And uh, from that point forward, I really saw that that Jesus Christ and and the Bible these things were more important than anything else that that I could know about. So I threw myself into the study of that and. Uh, you know, early on, I was I found Chuck Missler's Bible studies really interesting. Uh, Chuck is a not afraid to uh, address kind of fringe issues that a, a lot of traditional pastors wouldn't go near, and that really captured my interest. And I saw that you know the Bible wasn't boring. It wasn't you know something that you just go to you know, Sunday school and learn the little stories that they teach it, but it actually had answers to a lot of the strange things that you experience in life. 
life. And it, it really was the supernatural worldview that was based on reality. So, you know, from there, I threw myself into to serious study. I ended up you know, going to seminary, and I got a master's degree in theological studies and did some uh, apologetic certification over at Biola University. But in the process, you know, I started following uh, Tom Horn's Raiders News Update website because he, he addresses a lot of these fringier areas that typical you know, Christian sites kind of steer away from, but that I was always interested in because just because really of, of you know the way I used to live, I, I had no doubt that there was a lot of weird stuff that went on in the world that the typical scientific worldview does not address. And, and Tom, of course, covers all those subject areas. And at one point, Tom had uh, issued a letter to Christian leaders to get involved in the discussion concerning the issue of transhumanism. And this you know, be the idea that we can uh, evolve ourselves to and in effect become immortal or, or become superhuman, human 2.0, the technology. And um, at the time I was completing the, 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 the systematic theology sequence in seminary, so I wrote a paper for systematic theology class called The Doctrine of Man, a critique of Christian transhumanism. Because there are actually a few Christians that have tried to advocate this idea of evolving ourselves via technology. And you know, I sent a copy of that paper to Tom Horn, and he ended up wanting to publish it. So that became my first published work in a book that he put out called Pandemonium's Engine, and that kind of started our uh, relationship. And, uh, you know, so from there, Tom and I ended up doing this book on uh, the Malachi prophecy, Petrus Romanus, which is really about a lot more than the Malachi prophecy. That's actually sure. a minor point of the book, actually. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Now our next book will be released tomorrow. It's called Exo Vaticana, and it covers the Vatican extraterrestrial connection and, you know, a lot of the uh, the things that you hear about with the Vatican Observatory in Mount Graham, Arizona, and all the statements they've made in the media about baptizing ETs and whatnot. We, we unpack all of that stuff and more, and we really do think that the Vatican is leading the charge to the world accepting an extraterrestrial reality and how that probably plays into the end time scenario and biblical prophecy. So we see that as probably the thing that might unite the world to come together under one system because it really does look like we would need some kind of nonlinear event. And, you know, we look at the way the media has prepared us and the sorts of things that, that people are willing to accept. It really seems like that, you know, if there's going to be a strong delusion of demonic deception you know, associated with the end times, it's probably going to be clothed in the credibility of science. It's going to be something that people of all worldviews will, will be able to come together under an umbrella. So that's kind of our, our hypothesis with that. And the Vatican's leading the charge and has already developed the theology to accept this extraterrestrial reality. So that's who I am and where sure. I am today. Yeah, I definitely uh, want to talk about all that uh, as far as... Uh uh, the Exo Vaticanus, the the current work, and uh, but I wanted to start off with kind of like the the Saint Malachi prophecy, which is a huge thing in the news right now with the selection of the uh, of the uh, the current Pope Francis the First, who just got in there on Wednesday, and uh, I was kind of hoping that they take a while uh, to elect a Pope, so there could be you know little little mystery, but. Uh, 
I think it's interesting that, that he has been elected because then we can kind of talk about the St. Malachi prophecy. Uh, can you go forward, like, you know, uh, tell everybody what the St. Malachi prophecy is and uh, how you got interested in it and just like what, what, does, it, what does it mean? Well, sure. So what, what is the St. Malachi prophecy of the popes? Well, this is a, it's an extra-biblical prophecy. By a Catholic saint in the 12th century. According to the story that goes with this day, about 900 years old. Um, the way they tell it, Malachi Morgare, who was an Irish bishop, made a pilgrimage to Rome in 1139 AD. And outside the city of Rome, after having an audience with the Pope, he had a vision of 112 popes into the future, basically up to the tribulation period. Now, he records this vision as a series of Latin phrases. Apparently, these were images that he saw in his mind. Uh, some, and he, so he scribbled down like uh, cross of Romulus, flower of flowers, glory of the olive, these little phrases. Right. He described what, apparently what he saw in his vision. Well, what, you know, makes it all very uh sensational and interesting is that out of that list of 112 you know, 112 papacies uh, we're at the last one now so we're at number 112 and it's not a little phrase the, 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 the prophecy for the final pope is in the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church there will sit Peter the Roman who will nourish the sheep in many tribulations when they're finished the city of seven hills will be destroyed and the dreadful judge will judge his people. So that, you know, is rather obviously apocalyptic. It, it sounds like what we call the Great Tribulation in Bible prophecy. Um, it has some very uh, pretty clear, uh, pretty clear references to what I would say uh, is Revelation chapter 17, Mystery Babylon, the Great Harlot, uh, who, you know, dozens if not hundreds of, of scholars over the last 500 years have associated with the Roman Catholic Church, you know, apart from this prophecy. Yeah. Um, any kind of you know, Protestant commentaries on the book of Revelation from 1500 forward, you know, probably until the early 20th century, probably unanimously would have identified that with the Roman Catholic Church. If, if you look at the sort of language in chapter 17 of Revelation, it talks about scarlet and purple and golden goblets and just the, even the adjectives and, and the colors, you know, sound like the sort of things that we see in Catholic rituals. Well, it's also pretty clear that this great harlot is a, an apostate religious system. Now, you know, it's not even controversial from a Protestant uh, perspective to identify Catholic theology as apostate Christianity. They really have uh, altered the content of the New Testament gospel in really irreconcilable ways, in, in my point of view, in that I don't think that the way they articulate it, that they really have the biblical gospel at all. Now, I think that there are Catholics who are saved Christians. I think that that's possible, but it's in spite of the theological formulations that Rome has developed. The way Rome has developed their theology... Uh, it's completely alien to the sorts of things that the Apostle Paul talked about in the book of Galatians. Now, in the book of Galatians, you know, he told 
the Judaizers who had simply added circumcision to the gospel, that they were severed from Christ. Now, when I look at all the things that Rome has added to the gospel, it's a lot more than circumcision. Um, you know, basically, to understand Catholic theology in a nutshell, when you're baptized, that removes original sin. Okay, but the cross does not cover the sins that you commit after that point. So you're baptized into the Catholic Church, and then every sin that you commit afterwards, you have to do something about it. You have to attend Mass, you have to go to confession, you have to say Hail Mary, you have to do penance. Now, if you happen to not cover one of these with one of these rituals, then that's what purgatory is for. And that's where you work off your sin debt before you're admitted into heaven. Now, this is completely antithetical to the Gospel in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews... You know, mentions that Jesus sacrificed himself once for all, probably about five or six times. If you just do a search for the word once in the book of Hebrews, you will get at least six or seven hits. And it's in reference to the atonement on the cross. You know, and then in the Gospels, Jesus says, it is finished. So, you know, the, the proper New Testament theology says that our sins are covered past, present, and future by Jesus' work on the cross, one-time event. We do not need a mass to re-sacrifice Christ over and over. So my, you know, my main point of contention with, with Roman Catholic theology is just that. It's justification by faith alone. And, you know, that is, that is just an issue that I can't negotiate on. And, and the fact that Rome has deviated from that, in fact, at the Council of Trent, they absolutely cursed anyone who th says that it's by faith alone and you know I, I just can't give them a pass on that now it's not personal you know it's not I'm not bashing Catholics but I am bashing their theology yeah. I think it's, it's antithetical to the gospel so Chris, how do you... it's not a personal thing but right. so in Revelation 17 we see that the seven headed beast that the woman's riding it says that the seven heads are seven mountains on which she sitteth now, at the end of the chapter, it says that woman that you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, a proper way of interpreting the Bible is to always defer to the original author's intention is our first line of interpretation. When John wrote the book of Revelation, it was at the peak of the Roman Empire. There really was no good competition for Rome as the city that had dominions over the kings of the earth. Now, I believe that this mystery Babylon system encompasses a lot more than Rome. I think that it's you know, an umbrella, but I think leading the charge would be Roman Catholic ecumenalism, ecumenicalism in the end times. So for that reason, I do identify that as Mystery Babylon. And, you know, given that, in their own prophecy, this Catholic prophecy, says the city of Seven Hills is judged. So I, I see that coincidence as, as more than, you know, just a mere coincidence. I see it, you know, as talking about the same event. Chris, um, do you... Uh, Kind of digress a little bit. The the um, how do you think that the Catholic Church got to that point? Do you think it was just a way of just consolidating power? Uh, do you think there was something uh, more uh, more sinister involved with that? Well, in the book Petrus Romanus, you know, a lot of people think it's just a book about the prophecy of the popes, but that's yeah. really I cover the prophecy of the popes in the first two chapters, and I spend a lot more time on church history and theology than I do on the prophecy of the Pope. That's really just kind of a minor starting point. Um, my thesis, I really would have to give 
a lot of credit to Charles Spurgeon, um, who really inspired it. But you know, Spurgeon delivered a sermon, and his basic idea was that you know, what do we see at first with with early Christianity? We see the Roman Empire opposing Christianity. We see them feeding Christians to the lions. You know, we see them, you know, hunting them down, and uh, you know, trying to make them recant and worship the emperor and all these sorts of things. So Satan is the evil force that's always behind opposing the gospel, no matter what form it takes, whether it's the Roman Empire or, or you know, the, the Pharisees, but it's always the devil that's, that's charging these things. There is a supernatural reality behind these human forces. So, you know, Spurgeon said, you know, basically, well then, you know, as time went on, the devil changed tactics and basically became nominally Christian. So rather than just openly oppose the gospel, because the gospel grew like wildfire, and persecution. This is one thing that secular scholars don't have any answers for. You know, Christianity was so opposed for those first few hundred years. How did it grow so quickly, even though you had the Jews and the Romans, you know, trying to, to stamp it out? So the devil changed tactics, and he infiltrated. So what do we see with Constantine? Emperor Constantine issues the Edict of Toleration. Uh, basically, he made Christianity legal. But it also became the time where all sorts of paganism infiltrated the church, and the church became a worldly entity. So my thesis is is that the devil changed tactics. Rather than openly opposing the gospel, he infiltrated the church. Um, he brought, they brought in all sorts of pagan practices, all sorts of you know, political ideals. So when Christianity becomes this official state religion, we start to see all sorts of nonsense that doesn't belong in the gospel. We start to see coercion, you know, where you're either going to convert or we're going to torture you or burn you at the stake. You know, these ideas are completely uh, foreign to, to the New Testament, but this is what happens when it becomes a political power. So yeah. my basic thesis is that they became political, politicalized. And, um, you know, you start seeing, you know, bishops call, you know, who, where in the Bible would you get the idea that we're going to make an overall um, pontificus maximus over the whole church? I, mean, yeah, that was I was about a, to bring that up, yeah. Yeah, that's a pagan idea. That was the Roman emperor's name was pontificus maximus. And, that you was know, one the, of his titles, yep. Right, and, and the popes still call themselves that. They're still calling themselves the leader of the pagan empire. And, you know, unfortunately, whether they realize it or not, that's what they are. Um and, you know, I, I don't have any problem saying that because I think that they really have marginalized the real gospel, uh, you know, justification by faith alone. Well, the, the Pope, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but for a long time, for a thousand years, the Pope was really, um, not only was he the Pope, not only was he head of the Roman Catholic Church, but he was also the head of the Papal State. So he was just another prince uh, among many that had to worry about like the integrity of his own territory and raising right. revenue for it. That actually happened in, in 756 AD. And I make an argument in the book um, that's kind of interesting. We'll talk about this. So, you know, the, the Catholic Church perpetrates a myth. And it's, I call it the Petrine myth of apostolic succession. And this is the idea that their authority derives from a succession from the Apostle Peter. 
Okay, and so they call it the Petrine office. They say they sit on the seat of St. Peter. Well, I think the New Testament alone debunks this idea. Uh, anyone familiar with you know just basic New Testament knows that Paul was the apostle sent to the Gentiles, and Peter was the apostle sent to the Jews. So it really doesn't even seem coherent that, that Peter would be a bishop of Rome, which is, you know, a Gentile city. Um, in the book of Acts, the last time, you know, the first half of the book really deals with Peter and Peter's ministry. The second half of the book, it switches over to Paul. The last time that we see Peter is in chapter 15, which is when they decided that the Gentiles didn't have to follow all the Jewish customs that, you know, just to abstain from, you know, eating strangled animals and drinking blood and, you know, a few things like that. So they really didn't fall under the Jewish law, and they, they released, you know, Gentiles from that and from circumcision and, and all the Jewish ideas. So that's the last time we see Peter. Now that it switches over to Paul, and then Paul, the end of the book of Acts ends in Rome, where Paul is arrested, he's in Rome. Now, at this time, the Catholic Church would have us believe that Peter is the Bishop of Rome. This is what their, this is what their history says. This is what their claim is. But Peter is never mentioned and associated with the city of Rome in the book of Acts. It ends with Paul arrested there. It never says one word about Peter. Peter is yeah. sent from the book. Now, in the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Church, at this time, the Catholic Church would have us believe Peter was the bishop of Rome. Paul sends greetings to 29 people at the end of the book of Romans. Peter is not mentioned. I think that these facts alone controvert their claim that Peter was bishop of Rome. But, you know, just to add insult to injury, the, some of the first lists that we have from the early church um, by uh, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Irenaeus uh, has a list where he says that, you know, he lists uh, the first bishop. And the first bishop of Rome on his list is Linus. Okay, so he says that Paul appointed Linus as the first bishop of Rome. Now, what we see with these early bishops of Rome is they're only a regional authority. They, they did not have power over the whole church. Now, sure. Rome was the capital of the empire, so people probably did look to Rome as an example, but it was not like the papacy that we see today. The papacy that we see today really came into being in 606 A.D., so we're talking 600 years later. Now, what makes that really interesting is Pope Gregory I, who was Pope up until 600, he actually wrote in a statement that if anyone should claim to be the universal bishop over the whole entire church, that he would be the precursor to the Antichrist. This is Pope Gregory. He wrote this. Then the next pope made that claim. He claimed himself universal bishop. And so for that reason... Many of the Protestant reformers, people who interpret the book of Revelation in what they call the historicist view of the book of Revelation, they thought that that was the beginning of the reign of the Antichrist. Now, they interpreted Revelation chapter 12, which talks about a period of 1260 days that the woman who they saw as the church was chased into the desert by the red dragon, the devil, and pursued. And they interpreted those days as years, the year-to-day formula, like we see in the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy and other prophecies. So they actually thought that this thing in the book of Revelation is talking about a period of 1260 years that the true church 
was oppressed by the Antichrist system, the papal system. So because of this claim in 606, many, I mean, people like, you know, Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, um, they, they would look at this and say, well, from 12, from 606, 1260 years, that they predicted that the papal system would come apart in 1866. And this was a really popular view. And there's lots of commentaries you can find from the 19th century that advocate this. Now, of course, that did not happen in 1866, and a lot of people were disappointed. Uh, there's a lot of speculation uh, in the 19th century on the states, the Millerites, other groups. But, However, that's uh, interesting that you say that. Uh, um, the... 1866. I mean, that was the beginning of a time for the papacy that wasn't right. uh, that wasn't where it wasn't very strong. Uh, you know, the the Italian unification, and I think 1866. Was a long Yeah, yeah. They lose the papal states at that point, and they're they're considered prisoners in the Vatican. Right. So interesting that it did fall that way. Now you can also find. A lot of commentaries that that talk about perhaps the beginning of this 1260 years was in 756. Now, this is when the Papal States actually became a power. Uh, Can you hear? Yeah, I can hear you great. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Um, You you fade in and out a little bit, but I I don't... don't, It's okay. Okay. It's something called the Donation of Pepin. Yeah. what this entails, this is what I make an argument in the book, that uh, the church really became a worldly power, and it's what you were talking about with the papal states. So, and now, various commentators in these older um, historicist commentaries kind of, they have a dates from 752 A.D. to 756. Now, most modern historians will date the donation of Pepin at 756, but it's quite interesting that you can find... Uh, Many who thought it was 752, which makes for some interesting reading. I'll, I'll explain in just a second. So what happened in th- this time was Pope Stephen I um, was really troubled by the fact that all these, uh, the Lombards and some other tribes of people surrounding Rome were kind of muscling in on their territory, and he really wanted the king to rout them out. So the Roman Catholic Church actually created a fraudulent document, and this has been proven decisively to be a fraud. And what it said was that the Emperor Constantine donated all the land around Rome uh, to the church when he moved the capital to uh, Constantinople, which is in Turkey and today is called the city of Istanbul. So, you know, he... He moved the empire and supposedly donated all the land to the Pope. Well, this letter is completely fraudulent. But Pope Stephen took this this manufactured document to King Pepin in France. Now, Pepin was the father of Charlemagne, who everyone has heard of. Um, So we're talking about Charlemagne's father, Pepin the Short. Uh, Pope Stephen gives Pepin the Short this letter saying, look, this is our land. Um, all these people that are living there are, you know, they've stolen our land. So he actually took his army and went to Rome and slaughtered these people and ran them off the land and gave the land to the papacy. This is how the papacy became a worldly power. Now, you know, when you look in the New Testament, you never get the idea that the church is supposed to be a worldly power and lord kingship over people. You know, Jesus said things like, 
you know, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, if it was, I would have people fight for me and I wouldn't be crucified. But, you know, here we have the papacy not only embracing worldly power, but doing so on false pretenses and, yeah. and people kill in the process. Uh, Sounds really loving. So, you know, this is what happened. So this is, you know, another date where many historicists anchored that 1260 years. Now, what's really interesting is 1260 years from 756 lands us in the year 2016. So you could actually still hold to the classic historicist view that really was the main view of the book of Revelation for 400 years. Um, so it's really not done yet. I mean, there's a live possibility that that could be the right interpretation and that we're going to see the destruction of Rome, you know, in the next few years. Now, what is really interesting is there were some commentators, like I found a 19th century prominent Presbyterian pastor from the Northeast who dated the uh, donation of Pepin in 752 A.D. So actually, you know, I'm talking, he said that the end times would happen in 2012. <laughs> yeah. Which is really amazing, considering you know all the stuff last year with Mayan calendar. You know, it's like people thought it was all just the Mayans and all this, but actually, yeah, you can find you know really respectable, big name churches up north uh, where where their pastors were predicting this would happen in 2012. And I think it was mainly due to you know some misunderstanding about when the donation of Pepin happened. It was actually a process, you know, where it went back and forth between the king and the pope, and you know, I think it probably ensued around 751, but it didn't really come to fruition, and the deal wasn't really done until 756. And that's why most modern historians would say 756. But, you know, that really opens up a whole different um, line of interpretation that's based solidly on Scripture and really is the main view of the Protestant Reformation up until 100 years ago. Well, I wanted to ask you, Chris, you know, this, the, the St. Malachi prophecy, you know, that brings us back to it. And so, is Francis I, is he Peter the Roman? You know, my answer to that, and you know, a lot of people are asking me that, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't know until, only time will tell. You know, I, I've i never been completely married to the Malachi prophecy as, as sure. some prophecy i've always said it you know i'm like 60 70 percent you know maybe 70 percent on a good day you know i'm not predisposed to believing extra biblical catholic prophecies uh you know in fact i'd probably be predisposed the other way but when i set out to investigate it i read a lot of books and you know read the various arguments and you know i can't debunk it but you know it's not on the level of the precision that I see in some of the, the Old Testament messianic prophecies, but yet at the same time, it really has forecasted the future. I, I, I'm convinced that it has. You know, I, I can't say that it's 100%, but some of it is, is pretty vague. But yeah. the ones where it hit, it hit in such a way that it's compelling. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about it is something I call the principle of embarrassment. Now, what I mean by that is when, you know, when I, when I debate skeptics or atheists about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, one of the arguments that I would make is, you know, the Gospels have things like Peter denying the Lord three times. They have the apostles all running and hiding when Jesus is arrested. You know, when somebody like the apostles testify in such a way that it doesn't make them look good, when it's embarrassing to them, 
that's generally a sign that you have authentic testimony because people don't usually make stuff up that makes them look bad. Yeah. Uh, so when I see a Catholic prophecy that says the city of Seven Hills will be destroyed and the dreadful judge will judge his people, that doesn't sound like the sort of thing a Catholic would want to make up. Does this, uh, you know, also to you know the the the, the secrets of Fatima, those prophecies, is, mm-hmm. is there possibly a link there? There would seem to be, and you know, but the, my problem is, is I don't think Mary is appearing and giving people prophecies. I, I don't. Yeah, think I would agree with you on that. I think it's Mary. So I, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical right from the start. Even if I knew what the real third secret was, I don't know that I should believe it because. I don't think it's Mary. I think it's a deception. But the thing that's interesting is they do seem to be hiding the real one and perpetrating some kind of forgery out there. Yeah. Some kind of one. And it tells me that it, it's probably this principle of embarrassment in operation. It probably is predicting judgment and that the church is apostate. And I have a feeling that's what it is. Now, I, I have run across a website that claims to have the authentic uh, prophecy. I have no idea if it's accurate, but it actually says that Rome will be destroyed in May of 2013. And this is a Catholic site that says this. So I don't know. If that, yeah, so, I mean, that would it's seem pretty, to It's pretty close. It is. But, I mean, <laughs> it, it would make a lot of sense in that there's some other prophecies that say the same thing. Uh, there's one that Tom Horn talks about a lot that, actually, I think J.R. Church from Prophecy in the News was the one that first found it. But it's a Zohar, you know, a Kabbalistic Jewish prophecy which is, you know, just occultism. But according to that prophecy, the kings of the earth would gather in Rome in the year 5273, which is this, which is 2012 to 2013, because the Jewish year starts in September and ends in September. So it says that, that Rome would be judged in that year, um, interestingly. So that would actually coincide with that as well. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it is interesting that when you have more than one source that's not aware of the other one uh, coming to the same conclusion. But, you know, I just say pay attention and see what happens. But it's interesting to me that there's, you know, these different traditions seem to be arriving at the same point in time. Do you think that it's a literal destruction or some for figuratively? I don't see how you could take it anything other than literally. I mean... Yeah, I, I don't see that as a metaphor. The city of Seven Hills will be destroyed. <laughs> now, if it actually coincides with Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, you know, chapter 18 definitely uh, talks about a destruction uh, of the Babylonian system. Now, you know, I think that the book of Revelation is definitely um, is an umbrella term for this whole apostate religious system. I don't think it just is just Catholicism. I think it's a lot more, uh, and that destruction of Mystery Babylon could entail a lot of the other things, a lot of the other ideas that people have. I mean, some people even identify it with the United States. Um, there's definitely yeah. pl- there's plenty of apostate religion in the United States. You know, the mainline Protestant denominations. You know, three of the big ones right now are putting up homosexual clergy in front of their people. Now, you know, when you're modeling a behavior that the Bible says will lead you to hell. When you're putting up leadership in front of your people and modeling that as an example, I mean, you are knowingly, knowingly leading congregations to hell. And I don't know how it could be more apostate than that. And those, these are our mainline churches in the United States. The, the Catholic Church uh, 
Well, let me ask you. I mean, do you think that uh, this the Francis Pope? Do you think that he is uh, going to be different than the others? There's been no. a lot of on the news is saying that he's he's probably going to change things, but uh, but he's conservative about other things. He's liberal about some things. That he's a friend of the poor and right. Well, you know, I, it's too early to say. I tell you what, if the Malachi prophecy is a true prophecy, if it holds, you know, and that's just that's a big if. Um, yeah. Then, and he is, you know, and that's a Catholic prophecy. That's not, you know, a Protestant making this claim. And, you know, does that mean that he is the false prophet? Well, that's the way I've interpreted it because, you know, I see that the city of Seven Hills is destroyed. I mean, I don't know how you can escape that that's the judgment of God. Um, if he, you know, if this Petrus Romanus is such a good pope, I mean, some Catholics want to spin it because it says he nourishes the sheep in many tribulations. Well, that means he's a good pope. Well, if he's a good pope, then why is Rome destroyed? <laughs> is my, um, so I, I, I interpret this final pope as the false prophet. Now, whether the Malachi prophecy holds or not, I still would go with that idea because, number one, you know, I, I address right from the outstart of this show that you know, I have a problem with Catholic theology. I think that they've undermined the gospel. So all popes are false prophets. Uh, in that in that light, but then when I look when I do exegesis on on Revelation 13, verse 11 says that uh, he'll have horns like a lamb, yet speak like a dragon. Now, like a lamb is pretty obvious that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So he's seen as a Christian leader. I think that's what the Book of Revelation is teaching us. Hmm. He's a lamb. Now horns. Are generally, a, you know, a sign of power. You know, a bull with two horns. So, you know, when you, if you were to survey the whole world, to Arkansas, you know, and get the majority opinion, I think out of the world is going to see a pope as the most powerful Christian leader. You know, whether you know evangelicals don't believe that necessarily, but you know, worldwide. If we had to take a survey and, and name who the world thought was the most powerful Christian leader, I'm pretty sure the Pope would be the winner of that. Yeah, he'd, probably, he'd definitely probably be number one, yeah. So when it says he has horns like a lamb, I think that that's a pretty strong hint that the false prophet is a Pope. And then it says he speaks like a dragon, which the dragon is identified for us as Satan in the, in the book of Revelation. So, you know, completely apart from the Malachi prophet, I think that the biblical prophecies are pointing to a pope as the false prophet who points the world to, to worship the Antichrist. It, you know, and that makes sense because they are the biggest you know, religious denomination with people in power in almost every nation. Um, they have their own seat in the United Nations. Speeches uh, by various popes over the last 20 years advocating a one-world government and a one-world financial system. In fact, Pope Benedict just put one out years ago calling for a one-world financial authority with yeah. real teeth. You know, that's a direct quote, with real teeth. So they are leading the way. I mean, if you look at the sort of theology from Vatican II, they've uh, opened up the doors to create an ecumenical faith. Um, and we also see some really astounding developments in that they have acquired some really prime real estate in the holy city of Jerusalem so the Pope could literally take a seat on Mount Zion uh, 
you know, in short order. In the time that we have, because um, I've only got you here for another few minutes, but uh, that leads us to what you're working on now, which is the Exo Vaticanus about, uh, you know, um, extraterrestrials and the Vatican and how they want to basically baptize extraterrestrials. Uh, it's very interesting. Some very interesting th- things to deal with that. I can, can go over that a little bit. Well, certainly that, you know, this is our new book. It's basically the follow-up to uh, Petrus Romanus. And, you know, it's really ostensibly dealing with the Vatican-ET connection. I mean, even, you know, secular UFOlogists have commented how the Vatican seems to be leading the way towards extraterrestrial disclosure. Now, to some people, that might sound like a really radical thing, but if you follow the stories on the Internet, then it, it's really been going on for quite a while. Um, and, you know, it's not any kind of sensationalism or exaggeration for us to come to these conclusions. Uh, the Vatican had an astrobiology conference in 2009 in Rome. I mean, we're talking about sponsored by the Roman Catholic Church, invited the top secular scientists in the world in the field of astrobiology. This is the science of life in space. Now, I wrote a whole chapter on the science of astrobiology in this book, and and I really tried to unpack it. I think the thing that I find most astounding is that you can go to a university in the United States and get a Ph.D. in a science that really, in reality, has absolutely nothing to study. (laughs) Think about it. We don't no. know of life out in space, do we? I mean, I haven't. True. So there's still a debate on whether it's actually there's uh, anything on Mars. That still right. is it, a debate. It, yeah, they they haven't found any solid evidence of any life in space. Now, isn't it interesting that you can get a PhD in a science that has nothing to study? <laughs> but yeah. they actually do study things. I mean, they're looking for life. But I mean, I, I think it's just kind of amusing that. You know, you can do so much work with, with really no subject to study. But, uh, you know, they're looking for exoplanets. They've found, you know, they've got 600 identified right now, but they estimate that there are millions within the Milky Way of what they call, you know, exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system. Now, this is a really fantastic thing because in 1996, they found the first one. I mean, we did not know if there were other planets other than our own solar system. We had no evidence of any of these. The first one was 1996, and you think about how fast the world is changing. They have 600 identified now. They have a short list of about 10 or 11 that they say are in the habitable zone. So what what does that mean? Well, I think it's kind of a misnomer to say it's habitable. What it means is that it's in a comparable-to-Earth distance from its main star. And that means it's the right temperature where it could hold liquid water. Now, here's where we come into a worldview issue. Um, Basically, the idea driving this is that if you have liquid water in the right temperature, then life is inevitable. Now, of course, that is completely an assumption based on philosophical naturalism and the idea of abiogenesis, that, you know, life is just an accident of molecules running into each other in the right combination. And, of course, there's really no good evidence for that. In fact, it's so unlikely that life just poofed into being like that, that, 
you know, they've come up with the theory of what they call panspermia. Because, I mean, scientists are really confident about Darwinism and evolution on Earth, but they can't get it started because they have nothing when it comes to the origin of life. So what have they done? They, they've come up with this thing that life was seeded on Earth from space. But, see, they never solved the problem. They just pushed it out a level. They go, <laughs> we can't explain it, so it started somewhere else, and then, you know, and then it came here. But, yeah. how, you know, how did, how did it start there? You know, they never, they never really answered the question. They just kind of pushed it out into another planet. And, you know, so they still have nothing on the origin of life. But, you know, we get these kind of circular arguments. Um, but the Vatican has embraced this worldview. Now, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm going to make a big deal about. I think I'm going to do a blog post on it soon. Is People often talk about how Pope Benedict was a conservative and, you know, is this Pope going to be conservative? And, you know, to me, most of this language is nonsense. I mean, what they're talking about are conservative in what way? Because conservative on issues, like political issues, is really what they're talking about. But most people, when they say, is he conservative, they mean on things like abortion, on uh, contraception, on, you know, same-sex marriage. And you know what? Yeah, sure, they're going to have conservative stances on all these things. But, sure. I mean, that's just obvious. I mean, there's secular people that have conservative stances on those things. That doesn't mean he's theologically conservative. The Vatican dumped theological conservatism in the toilet years ago. Um, these, like Pope Benedict has written that, you know, that the book of Genesis is mythology. Um, they've completely embraced Darwinism and the, uh, the naturalistic paradigm uh, for the origin of man. Um, and one of the things that we really track in the book Acts of Vaticana is how they've really undermined the doctrine of creation and the sovereignty of God in fundamental ways. And, you know, Malachi and Martin wrote a book about the Jesuit order, and I think that the fact that this new pope is a Jesuit is really going to be the key factor that we're going to be looking at. And I'm Is still- he the first to ever be a Jesuit? Ever. Now, wow. Malachi and Martin's book, he said... He said it was a war, and the Jesuits are the ones that promote you know, these marks sorts of ideas. And you know, the Vatican astronomers that, that we're dealing with, who are talking about baptizing extraterrestrials, the ones that are, you know, basically they say if you don't believe in aliens, you're a, you're you're a heretic. Uh, that's really the new heresy because the way they're phrasing this is that you're diminishing God's glory by saying he didn't create aliens. Okay. Now, my thesis is, you know, I think the question of genuine extraterrestrials is another question. What I look at, when I look at the Bible, there's a philosophy of history, okay? And it's really two advents, the first advent of Jesus Christ and the second advent of Jesus Christ. These are the pivotal points that the Bible wants us to be looking for. We're supposed to be waiting for our blessed hope, the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture do I see something like a huge paradigm shift where aliens come here and, and educate us on our own some new theology. Yet, these Roman Catholic theologians and these Jesuits have written extensively about how we're going to need to modify from extraterrestrials. They have written explicitly. And what it all means. I think that they're really driving... 
paradigm developed by Taylor Chardon, who was alive in the 20th century. And many people connect him to the dawn of the New Age movement, but he was a paleontologist and a Jesuit who really embraced a mystical form of Darwinian evolution. And uh, I uncovered that Pope Benedict was up with this sort of uh, belief. And he, he really wrote quite a bit praising uh, Chardon, and he even used a lot of his terms like new genesis and uh, uh, Christogenesis. And these are all evolutionary ideas that basically, instead of the literal return of Jesus Christ, that what we're looking at is a evolution of our consciousness into this sort of hive mind uh, that they call Christogenesis, where all humanity is kind of unified in a monistic... It's really like Eastern philosophy in a lot of ways, but um, in the book Ex of Vatican, I quote the theological writings of uh, Pope Benedict, where he, he, he just endorses this sort of thing. So the idea that he's really a conservative, to me, is nonsense. I mean, people are talking about abortion, things like that. They're real obvious stuff, but if you read his theological writings, he's so far from conservative that it's not even funny. So they really are wide open to what we think is the coming great deception, the strong delusion that Paul wrote about in biblical prophecy. Our thesis is, is that, yeah, something's probably going to present itself as extraterrestrial. And they've already laid all the ground for it, work for it theologically and scientifically to accept it. We think the Vatican will probably be one of the key players in the disclosure of that. We do not think it really is an extraterrestrial. We think that this is how the end times prophecies are likely to play out. Because with all the secular mindset and the way people um, kind of you know, may have made an idol out of science, we think that this strong delusion will be clothed in the credibility of science. It's going to be something appealing to secular, rationalistic minds. It's not going to be just a supernatural religious play. It's going to be, you know, the alien savior idea that's just been seeded in our consciousness since the 1940s. Ever since they, were, they set out the nuclear weapon, there's been this idea that the flying saucer showed up to keep us from nuking ourselves. So no, we're we going to come save you, yeah. So this idea, everyone already is, is primed to believe it. And the movies have, have really served as a lot of propaganda. Uh, statistics show that 58% of the people in the United States already believe it. Um, right now in the UK, they did a poll where there are more people that believe in ET than believe in God. Okay, and, and I'm not joking. There's an article at the Huffington Post. Just look it up. It says more people believe in ET than God. So, you know, I think the world is already under the strong delusion, and we're just kind of waiting for it to, to manifest. Yeah, I I I would agree with you. <laughs> well. Um I think we're just about out of time, Chris. I know we got you here for only for a limited amount of time. So, it's been, you know, the book comes out tomorrow. So this is actually one of the, the first really extensive interviews unpacking that. Oh, wow. You're right on the, the cusp. You actually uh, scooped George Norrie. He gets me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he gets you later on in the night. Uh, Chris, uh, where can people get your books? And also, uh, where can they see your, your blogs? And, um, and uh, how the people can get in touch with you. Well, my publisher is Tom Horn. He's also my author. Uh, his website is RaidersNewsUpdate.com. And, of course, he's always keeps you updated there. Uh, the website for the book is ExoVaticanot.com. Uh, my website, uh, it covers all these topics, topics from the book, but also traditional Christian apologetics and, and theology. 
uh, is logosapologia.org. That's L-O-G-O-S-A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A dot O-R-G. And uh, it's been my pleasure to be on with you, Adam, and uh, I just wish you a lot of success with your show. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. It means a lot. Uh, stay on the line. We're going to close out here, but uh, stay on the line with us just a little bit. Okay. Uh, well, Luke, I guess we're ready to go. Let's do it. I guess uh, you're busily playing Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so uh, we will be back on Conspiranormal. All right, we are back on Conspiranormal. This is your host, Adam Sane. Your co-host, same guy. It's been sitting here all night. That's right. Just like a, <laughs> just like a lump glazing over because of all the, uh, the all the facts. The facts. <laughs> the facts and the uh, the dates and everything. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of that interview, man? Fascinating. Yeah. Did you enjoy um, playing Mortal Kombat? Yeah, I actually really suck at Mortal Kombat. <laughs> I can't even. Maybe it's the maybe it's the computer keyboard or something, but I can't get past the first friggin' opponent. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that, man. It's a tragedy. Well, uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit. Uh, before we go, about a movie that Luke and I watched called uh, called Compliance, and this movie is available on Netflix, and uh, it's basically about a uh, fast food workers. They get a call from someone pretending to be a policeman, and you can kind of tell a little bit about it too, Luke. Um. Yeah, so basically everybody in the movie is are just complete idiots, and <laughs> yeah, you know every, everybody's exactly. gonna everybody's gonna comply with the law to a certain extent, but these people obviously are are have heavily fluoridated brains or something like <laughs> there's there's something seriously wrong with someone who's gonna comply for hours with someone on the phone. That says they're the po- the police. Yeah, a guy calls and, up and says that he's a policeman and gets a uh, the store manager to basically uh, strip search a, uh, a a store employee. Yeah, it says that she's stealing and has her in a back room with no clothes on, just covered by an apron yeah. for hours, while the phone changes hands several times to uh, to strangers <laughs> and it and, and it's it's actually based on real events it's based on a uh on a on a prank that had been done several times in several fast food places and it's actually based on something that happened in Kentucky i'm thinking like uh 2000 or oh, so no wonder it's in Kentucky yeah Kentucky <laughs> our neighbors to the north but uh sorry to all our yeah, Kentucky listeners yeah sorry about that Robert Hyde, <laughs> you know uh but um so it was, it's a hard movie to get through, because not only are you sitting there thinking to yourself, how stupid can these people be? My finger but you just, just like, work. <laughs> But you just kind of like, well, you know, what, uh, what are these people, what are these people doing? Would, would I comply with somebody like that? No. Like we, pretending to be a policeman? E- even if it really was a cop, I'd be like, all right, dude, you're asking too much, and I'm just going to hang up on yeah, you. Yeah, really. Like, if you want to do something about it, come to the store. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. But I, I, I think the thing is, that the point is the movie that was making was that people, just ordinary people, will, will comply with things that they really should not comply with. Yeah. And that you, you know, you have a right as an American to not, uh, or as a human being for that matter, 
to not comply with such with with ridiculous uh, requests. So, I thought it was an interesting movie. It's on Netflix. It's called Compliance. Anybody out there want to check it out? Or you can download it illegally via yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You could do that too. Like, yeah, <laughs> they'll put you in jail. The internet police. Yeah, someday when they f- find some petty crime, then they'll, they'll get my hard drive too, and then they'll be like, "Well, we've got a, quite a collection of movies here." Yeah. That's <laughs> um, next week. We're going to be back in recording, and this one, I think, will be pretty interesting. I don't know what to expect. We got an email. The first ever email for Conspiranormal that wasn't, that wasn't from Google or Google Plus mm-hmm. or anything like that. The first ever actual email to Conspiranormal at gmail.com. And... Uh, Asking to come on to, to our show. And he's going to raise our vibratory level. And he says he's going to raise our vibratory levels. Yeah. And uh, he should be uh, probably quite different than uh, than what we had on tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm anxious to talk to <laughs> yeah. this person. Uh, it's going to be interesting, I think. And he says that he's also a channeler. That he channels uh, some spirit or something. I'm not sure. But no, uh, his uh, his spirit spiritual guy teacher. or something, yeah, his, spiritual his teacher, teacher his was that teacher, what it was? Yeah, his teacher. Yeah. Okay. Well, his name is Devin J. Byrne, and uh, he calls himself Divine Devin. And uh, he sent me an email and asked me to come on the show, and I said, okay, no problem. Just give me some material to look over, and uh, so far what I've seen looks pretty interesting. But still don't know really what to expect. But uh, we will... Uh, anything you want to add Luke I think we'll call it a night I think we're all I'm pretty tired we're ready to get out of here uh, I guess yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that'll do it man dead air well, I know everybody misses Chris and uh, I'm sure he'll be back on you know out of money at some point out of beer time to go home and lay on the couch and watch TV yeah man that's, <laughs> that's living right there no money and no beer living the dream <laughs> At least my girlfriend cooks things for me. Yeah, awesome. at least she feeds you, man. That's all, <laughs> that's all that uh, matters. All right, well, join us next week on Gets Paranormal where we get our vibratory levels uh, raised. And uh, we'll see you next week on Conspiranormal. Capuchow. One, two, three, five. La, 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 la.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.